0: Thanks for listening to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, this is David Gottlieb. My guest today is William Kohlbrenner, professor of English at Bar-Ilan University in Israel. Professor Kohlbrenner is author of The Last Rabbi, Joseph Soloveitchik and Talmudic Tradition, published by Indiana University Press. In this book, Professor Kohlbrenner plumbs the depths of Rav Soloveitchik's work as both a towering Talmudic scholar and a philosopher of great depth and nuance. Using a methodology that both honors and encompasses the breadth of Soloveitchik's erudition and experience, Professor Kohlbrenner consults literary and psychoanalytic theory to create a portrait of Soloveitchik and of rabbinic tradition that bridges the chasms and calamities of 20th century Jewish life and thought. William Kohlbrenner joins me today to discuss his book. Professor Kohlbrenner, thanks so much for being with me.
1: Delighted to be here, David.
0: And I'm, I'm very glad to hear your grandchildren in the background, and trust me, we'll all be very jealous of that, so, so no okay. worries. Um, I'm glad. Tell us a little bit about yourself, if you would, your background, your education and interests, and how you came to be interested in Rabbi Soloveitchik.
1: Well, I mean, first, I should probably say that that my profile is not exactly the classic profile of a Jewish studies scholar. My PhD is in English literature, and I did that PhD in in the 80s at Columbia on on John Milton. Uh, Milton, of course, is best known for his epic poem, Paradise Lost, but the work that really most compelled me as a graduate student was his 1644 tract against censorship called Areopagitica. What interested me about the work especially was the way in which he conceived of a conception of community while maintaining also an idea of pluralism. That idea fascinated me not only as a Miltonist, but being at Columbia in the 80s, where theory and literary and cultural criticism were were urgent matters, Mm -hmm. I was also interested in pluralism as a kind of theoretical principle. on the way, I, stu- I discovered Rabbi Soloveitchik's work, and I should say that really still today, more than any other thinker in the Jewish tradition, Rabbi Soloveitchik engaged me because he spoke the languages which I speak, meaning obviously he's an expert in the traditions of Western philosophy. And really, through his work, I was able to engage with and discover rabbinic texts in a way in which I certainly wouldn't have been able to otherwise. That is, I think Soloveitchik provides a kind of theoretical language to discuss issues that remain always implicit in the Talmud, that there are certain conceptions, for example, of pluralism in Talmudic languages that Soloveitchik articulates through the languages of, whether it's quantum physics or religious philosophy, that others only kind of act or practice. For Soloveitchik, there was not only the practice, but also the articulation of the methodological foundations of those discourses. Uh-huh. So really, I, I, I traveled that unusual path from Milton to Soloveitchik. Um, I think as a literary critic, uh, my, my current work, that is The Last Rabbi, is able to address issues in Soloveitchik's work, which perhaps some of his students were... Not able to address simply because their languages were mostly the languages of of Jewish thought, Jewish philosophy, and rabbinics.
0: Uh-huh. So uh, that raises a, a two-part question. One is for yeah. for intri- for listeners who who may not be uh, familiar yeah. with uh, Soloveitchik's biography. Tell us what made him unique as a 20th century. Uh, Talmudist and thinker, or indeed a Talmudist and thinker of any age. And the mm-hmm. second part of the question is, wh- why is the title of the book The Last Rabbi?
1: Well, Soloveitchik came from perhaps the greatest family, rabbinic family of the 19th to 20th century. That is, the Brisk family, Soloveitchik family. Um, and his father really wanted Soloveitchik to dedicate his life as his ancestors had. Uh, those include the Gan of Vilna and Chaim of Elisha. To continue in a world of Talmud and Rabbinics. His mother, however, was successful in getting the young Joseph to take a different turn and he went to the University of Berlin and studied philosophy. So Soloveitchik became an expert in both the languages of Jewish thought and also in philosophy, which was obviously, for in his age, extremely unusual. Um, he came to America in, in 1929 and established a community in Boston, and really from that community in Boston, and then continuing in his life as really the foundation or the intellectual foundation of Yeshiva University, he really created a new version of orthodoxy in America that is modern orthodoxy, Uh which, as you said in the introduction, really bridges the gap between religious and philosophical languages, between the world of really the world of the shtetl and the world of the university. You can really see in Soloveitchik's early writings in the late 20s when he first comes to Boston that he's trying to really balance those different influences in his life and in his community. And he is really successful, especially, obviously, in his own life, in maintaining the rigors of, of Jewish thought and also incorporating the, the open or more open world of the university. Uh-huh. Now, as for the, ti- as for the title of the last rabbi, um, Rabbi Jonathan, Jonathan Sachs, the, the former chief rabbi of, of England, describes Soloveitchik really as being the first rabbi. That is, after the Shoah, after the Holocaust, Soloveitchik is, is one of the first rabbis to to come to America and, as I said, to, to found a distinctly American version of orthodoxy. In that sense, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with Sachs. Soloveitchik is, in some sense, the first rabbi. But in other ways, Soloveitchik's emphasis or his own self-creation, his own really idiosyncratic development. Soloveitchik says at the beginning of his most canonical work, Halakhic Men, that the most important <laughs> gift that Judaism gave to the world was the emphasis on creativity. And Soloveitchik mm-hmm. really emphasizes in his own writing, in his own kind of self-creation. And he really creates himself. In the late 1950s, he wrote, I think, somewhat despondingly, uh, despairingly, that he had failed as a rabbi in Israel, which is quite extraordinary, actually, because wow. he probably gave rabbinic ordination to to more people than any other rabbi, certainly in America, uh, that people say about 2,000. But he conceived of himself as a failure as a rabbi, a failure as a teacher in Israel, because as he wrote, he was unable to convey what he calls the Torah of the heart. Solveig's work, on the one hand, is, Immensely analytical Talmudic detailed mm-hmm. on the other hand is another side of his work, which is full of emotion exploration Explorations of the psyche and Of course the former he was able to convey to his many many Talmudium, to his many many students mm-hmm. but the latter he felt at least less so and I, I I've, I've spoken to many of his students and they've objected to the title and said, of course, it wasn't like that, but I'm, I'm primarily interested in my book and Soloveitchik's own self-representation. In some sense, he felt that he was a failure and was and did fail to, to convey a certain aspect of his teaching, a certain aspect of his Torah.
0: It's interesting because you, you paint a, a very nuanced picture of Soloveitchik as a mm. conflicted, lonely, uh, melancholy man, someone drawn to and repelled by the world of halakhic epistemology, especially its masculine aspects. And you take a very interesting approach, approach consulting Freudian thought. And I wonder what, what in Soloveitchik's work in his biography, a- and perhaps in your own, um, led you to this approach to Soloveitchik's work?
1: I, I guess I'll start with the last part of your question. And, and I had started out thinking that I would write a book about the continuity between Talmudic epistemology and hermeneutics, and Soloveitchik's epistemology and hermeneutics. That is, I I had been writing articles about Talmudic epistemology, uh, the nature of Talmudic dispute, and I had also been, as I said at the the outset of of our talk, the nature of of Soloveitchik's conception of pluralism. I, I realized as I was putting the work together that there was not so much a continuity between Talmudic conceptions of pluralism and Soloveitchik's conception of pluralism, mm-hmm. but actually a, a rupture. And I, as you mentioned, turned to, to Freud's work. I, I remember rereading Freud's 1915 essay, Mourning and Melancholy, while I was preparing or in the process of writing The Last Rabbi and found that the, the conception, Freud's conception of mourning was appropriate to the rabbinic conception of interpretation. That is, for the rabbis, there is what I call a kind of hermeneutics of mourning. Uh-huh. At the beginning of, any, of every hermeneutic endeavor, I think for the rabbis, there's a sense of loss and uh, a, 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 a lack of knowledge. And that lack is recuperated or somehow accommodated through the process of interpretation. And out of that conception of the hermeneutics of mourning. For Freud, mourning means simultaneously going back to the past and going forward into the future. For the rabbis, there's the attempt to go back into the past, but also to move into the future, a future of multiple interpretations. For Solveig, by contrast, it wasn't so much the healthy version of mourning, which Freud describes, but rather the unhealthy version of mourning, the sense that loss becomes so overwhelming that one needs a kind of compensation for that loss. So Soloveitchik, I think, feels a tremendous sense of the loss of some kind of essential wholeness. And here I think Soloveitchik is more um, drawn to some conception of being, of ontology, the desire for some union. And because he can't have that, there is the need for a compensation of the law to which Soloveitchik always has an ambivalent relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. Freud and Freudian thinkers have gendered what I spoke about as being and the compensation of the law as feminine and masculine. And in Soloveitchik's work itself, when he speaks about the gendered mother or the gendered father, the archetypal father and archetypal mother, he speaks about the mother in terms of merging. It's a possibility of merging that Soloveitchik in his writings seems to both relish and also fear, that this is the desire for, or that longing for union, but also the sense or the fear of getting subsumed.
0: Because you, you know, the, the sense of rupture is all throughout mm. his work in terms of his mm. discussion of Adam the First and Adam the Second, the dialectical approach that he takes to uh, to uh, questions of wholeness and reunion with mm. the divine, which are both at once to be desired and unattainable. Mm. So, is is his conception of rupture? I guess uh, I, I'm I'm too drawn to two part questions. So I'll break this up. The mm. first question is: Is his sense of rupture? Uh, inter- how much of it is in t- internal to the rabbinic hermeneutic, and how much of it emerges or changes after his? Um, removal from the world of his birth and after the Shoah. I
1: I think for Soloveitchik, you talk about him or my writing about him as a lonely or melancholy figure. I mean, it's really Soloveitchik himself as I'm sure your listeners know who fashions himself as the lonely man of faith. Right. Um, Part of the argument of my work is is that when he proclaims on the first page of the lonely man of faith, I am lonely, it's a, a kind of a kind of mark of Cain, which he's taking for himself. It's a way really of identifying himself as an individual outside of the tradition of his fathers. Early on in his life, when he represents himself, there's a a fascinating piece in in the work from There Shall You Seek, in which Soloveitchik imagines himself as a young man in the study of his father. And he really imagines himself um, very much outside the gathering of, of, of students who are Awaiting the interpretations of his father. Right. Um, it, it, in, in those stories, loneliness is a mark of vulnerability, of being an outsider, of shame. By, 19, by the 1960s, Soloveitchik has transformed that loneliness into a mark of existential authenticity, which really goes back to what I was saying earlier about Soloveitchik throughout his writings representing himself or representing his own progress. Um, for Sulevich, tshuva, repentance, is, is such an important part of of his philosophical discourses. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also important for Sulevich because it's for him the means of storytelling, of rewriting in more theological terms, rewriting one's past in order to in atonement. But in personal terms, it was the way of Sulevich rewriting his own story. Um, so that loneliness really shifts in his own register from being, again, that mark of vulnerability and shame to that mark of existential authenticity. And I, I think, again, the briskers, his ancestors, Rav Chaim, his grandfather, Rav Velvel, his uncle, are not um, of the same type. I mean, he, he later in his life tries to rewrite the story of his uncle Velvel in his own um, according to his, really his own lights and sees him as an emotional figure. But that, by all accounts, does not seem to be characteristic of Velvel or the other figures of Brisk. I mean, it's really true that Soloveitchik rewrites almost all of the biblical figures um, who he encounters as lonely figures. So Moses is a lonely figure, Abraham is a lonely figure, Elisha is a lonely figure. For Soloveitchik, loneliness is just a a major interpretive category.
0: So, and then fact, back, to, back the, yeah, to the yeah. first part of my question, sorry for interrupting, but that leads back to the first part of the question, which was how, how, how internal to the rabbinic hermeneutic that he, whose tradition he inherits is the mm-hmm. concept of rupture, and what does he do with that concept that is unique to him? Well, well I think, again, maybe to,
1: to try to rearticulate what I was saying earlier, Rabbinic pluralism is based upon the notion that any epistemological act is by definition going to be incomplete. Therefore, there's the, the imperative of of machloket of dispute. Mm-hmm. In, 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 in my reading of the rabbinic tradition, I know there are other readings, uh, dispute is not is, is, is not bidyavad, it's not something like after the fact that we have to somehow settle with. That is all there is. Um, Hilary Putnam, the late Hilary Putnam, the phlo- mm-hmm. Harvard philosopher, he said, adopting J.L. Austin, enough may not be everything, but enough is enough. And I think that really is a motto for rabbinic interpretation, uh-huh. that there is a, not so much a settling, but an acknowledgement of the limitation of interpretation. And that's therefore the necessity of Rava and Abaya, the necessity of having different perspectives on an interpretive issue. That is, once we lose that initial or original sense, I mean, the Talmud thematizes this kind of issue in, in its recountings of the death of Moses. Somehow the, before the death of Mo- Moses, there was this whole or complete truth after the death of Moses. We enter this realm of tradition, of Masara, of also multiplicity, and that realm of multiplicity is informed by, what, again, what I call this epistemological humility, where the sense that enough is enough. For Soloveitchik, as I was suggesting, and this is tied to what I was saying earlier about his need to be tied to, to being or to oneness, is enough really isn't enough. For Soloveitchik, the model of interpretation is not so much the model of these and these are the words of the living God, mm-hmm. the idea that's thematized about, uh, about dispute in, in the Talmud, but when he writes about interpretation, he writes about interpretation as conquest now, oh. uh, of course, in the early work, in Halachic Man, there is a kind of almost euphoric sense of conquest as being able to push off all of the existential problems of life. Right. That through conquest, one conquers death. Through conquest, one conquers mystery, that is, interpretive conquest. Later in his life, um, he doesn't move away so far from the conception of interpretation as conquest, but he understands its limitations. So there is the famous, in his late work, movement both towards and back. That is, the halachic man, the interpreter, still when he interprets, is a man who conquests, the subject conquering the object. But he afterwards has to withdraw and admit defeat. So where in the Talmud there's that acknowledgement of the necessity of different perspectives, for Soloveitchik there's, Always that triumphant moment of interpretation, but also then that movement back. So it really is, instead of enough is enough, it really is all or nothing. Either have it all, or there's that sense of existential despair in having nothing. I and mean, more and more in Soloveitch's later work, mm-hmm. there is the sense that the purview of halacha has constrained, and there are less and less areas in which the halacha can claim to to claim con to claim conquest, right. um, but there still is that, that conception of rabbinic or Talmudic interpret- hermeneutics as one of conquest of, of possession.
0: How, how um, internal to traditional ri- rabbinic hermeneutics is his idea, which I think you discuss as coming later in his work, when he mm. sort of argues against the subject-object distinction Ah. And and you have a lot of interesting things to say about this with respect to pluralism and polysemy mm. and multiplicity and legal dispute. Can you talk mm. about what he says about the subject-object distinction and receptions of that idea? Mm. Well, I, I think uh,
1: what I what I haven't mentioned is that in in Soloveitchik's work there seems to be a gap or again another rupture between his conception of. Talmudic hermeneutics that is a legal interpretation and the realm of the psyche or a Philosophical realm in which he really does cultivate a certain kind of pluralism Readers of Soloveitchik especially of halakhic mind will know that in trying to find a place for religious philosophy in a world in which science was triumphant He argued for a certain kind of methodological pluralism and as you suggest that methodological pluralism is informed by his desire to break down the subject object distinction. Mm -hmm. He really saw science, especially in the early part of the 20th century as embracing an older Newtonian conception of objectivity, which of course was also adopted by the social sciences, which I also think he he objected to. Mm -hmm. Um, Soloveitchik not surprisingly embraced the innovations of quantum scientists who in their own scientific work, we really collapsing the distinction between subject and object as what comes out of, of Bohr's, uh, Niels Bohr's conception of, complementari- uh, of complementarity, mm-hmm. is the idea that subjects help create the world that they see. And of course, this is, I, I mean, in, in a way, this is really the crux of my argument about Soloveitchik and, and, and the rabbis in general. It's a very hard argument to make. And, in today's world, because as soon as you make a statement like I do, like I just did, people will claim, "Oh, oh well, that means you're just a relativist." And, right. and of course, it, it, it right. really, it really, it really, do- or to embrace the other side, that that you just believe in objective truth as if such a thing could possibly exist. Mm-hmm. So, Levecic understood, and he's really getting this, understanding from Aristotle, that subjectivity and objectivity are really just points on a continuum. And it's through subjective perspectives that different parts of the object begin to emerge. He made this argument very, very powerfully in relationship to his discussions of methodological pluralism. What's interesting is that he does not make the same argument in relationship to rabbinic pluralism. That is, where pluralism is something to be celebrated in his philosophical discussions, the, the phrase again, these and these are the words of the living God, which are probably celebrated in a, every major Jewish theologian of the, of the 20th century, certainly the late 20th century, right. is really notably absent from Soloveitchik's work. He's really not so interested in pluralism, not as a theori- theoretical concept. Maybe in practice, as some of the students will always point out, he obviously was um, a master of those Talmudic discourses. Mm-hmm. But when he theorizes those discourses, he's really not interested so much in pluralism.
0: Okay. And uh, this leads to questions I have, uh, because he's such a unique thinker, about, and we've covered this a little bit, but I want to go back to the question of different receptions of his work. Some claim that there's a comprehensive unity to the work, and others assert that there's, that the, you know, the embrace of paradox and ambiguity or ambivalence and the sense of loss uh, mm. Makes him more of mm. a a Western philosopher than a rabbinic thinker, and there's even division within uh, the modern Orthodox community, and I would and I believe amongst the students uh, who studied mm. under him as to the unity uh, of his thought. Can you you address that a little bit in the book? And I wonder if you'd talk about that.
1: So let me give you a two part answer. Then mm-hmm. um, I think as far as the reception of his students or Soloveitchik's. Uh, work as received by his students. Um, I I think it's probably true of any complex thinker, and I'm thinking probably most of of John Milton. Um, There is a way in which the thinker accommodates himself or herself to multiplicity of different perspectives. Milton was notable for being both in the eyes of his readers an orthodox thinker and as William Blake called him, of the devil's party without knowing it. And so Soloveitchik now is the poster boy for both a modern liberal orthodoxy or liberal modern orthodoxy, Mm -hmm. but also he is a figure, uh, to me, unbelievably, of a kind of Haredi orthodoxy, that a Soloveitchik lends himself to different kinds of appropriations. Moving on to the other part of your question, the way in which people will use either the word paradox or ambivalence, or actually ambivalence is my word, Mm -hmm. paradox or or dialectic, in order to create a, a unity out of Soloveitchik's work, to me, that's a form of apologetics. And I think there is has been a kind of, I won't call it a failure of Soloveitchik scholarship, because it's really not not fair to say such a thing, but most of Soloveitch's scholarship has been conducted by his students, and they're very much inside of the hermeneutic circle. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if it to suggest that you know, readers of Paradise Lost could only be 17th century Puritans. <laughs> um, m- meanings of Paradise Lost really develop or become evident over the centuries, or over the decades, uh-huh. over the ages, and I, I, I think that's the same thing that should be true of Soloveitch. People have, have found Soloveitch outside of this hermeneutic circle outside of his students to be passe or boring. And I think that's because we've reached a kind of, of impasse with his, with, his, in his reception that his students see him only as a rebbe. And um, you've noted in, in, in the conversation we've been having, I refer to him sometimes as as Rabbi Soloveitchik, but um, in my book I, I talk to him to speak about him as, as Soloveitchik, yeah. which I think in a way dignifies him in giving him a place as a significant theologian and philosopher of the twentieth century. That is to take him out of the the provinces of Yeshiva University, in which he is kind of a Rebbe, right. and to open up his work to other languages, to other discourses. So I think as you suggested in, in your introduction, I I I employ a kind of hermeneutics of empathy, meaning I have an obvious reverence for the Rav. Yeah. But there's also a hermeneutics of suspicion. And I said before that, that my word really is ambivalence, that there is an unarticulated sense of rupture in Soloveitchik's work. And for me, the languages of psych- psychoanalysis and, and some literary criticism help unearth that and help give, give, give form to that ambivalence. Interesting. And I, do think, I do think there's ambivalence in Soloveitchik's work, which those who say, well, the dialectic reigns over all of Soloveitchik's work, I think they're really un- un- unwilling to, to acknowledge that ambivalence. Uh-huh.
0: It's funny because uh, one of the phrases that I was going to um, use with respect to your perspective on Soloveitchik is, is a hermeneutics of disillusionment. In fact, the very first words of your book are, are very um, mm-hmm. evocative. You say, this book began in disillusionment uh, in the preface. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you, and you make compelling observations about subjectivity and objectivity as fussy remnants of an older scholarship. But when you say mm-hmm. this book began in disillusionment, what do you mean and what became of the disillusionment that the book began with?
1: Well, I think as
0: I, I said in
1: the opening, my interest in Solovechik was at first motivated by this interest in pluralism. And I think that disillusion that I er, felt originally was seeing the way in which his own conception conceptions of pluralism were dictated, his readings of religious philosophy, of the philosophical traditions of the West of methodological issues that were urgent in the early part of the 20th century. But when it came to his own rabbinic tradition, he was not using or deploying that conception of pluralism at all. Mm. So I think as an acknowledged, a self-acknowledged American liberal, I felt that sense of disappointment or disillusion in in confronting what I understood after decades of reeling, reading Soloveitchik, the Contradictions and maybe rupture of his work. Uh-huh. Um, h- having said that, um, I, I think that the book ends with really a note of optimism. That is, Soloveitchik on the one hand pushes off pluralism in a certain interpretive that is legal or hermeneutic realm, but he definitely um, he definitely puts forth a conception of pluralism in both his readings of of the psyche and also in his in his ethics. I think the ethics that Soloveitchik develops in his later work, which really do emphasize plural agencies or different agencies, Mm -hmm. encountering other or others, that's using Buber's language or Levinas's language, and also in his conception of the psyche, where he acknowledges multiple agencies, in in many ways, like Freud. And I think Soloveitchik, my reading yeah, I, uh, my Freudian reading of Soloveitchik, I think, is justified because I think Freud was was always, in some sense, on on Soloveitchik's mind. Um, I think he was trying to redeem the Jewish project from or he, the, a, a book was was published called Family Redeemed, and I think it probably should have been titled Family Redeemed from Freud. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Interesting, <laughs> but so- I think the book and the. Yeah, yeah. I, I was ahead. just going to say that I think the, the the book ends. I I hope on a positive note in incorporating that pluralism, and trying to think of a a future that would both um, incorporate the hermeneutics of mourning of the rabbis and also the plural pluralism that's implicit in Soloveitchik's ethics and conception of the psyche.
0: Right, and I think your I think your book really sets an interesting new direction for the study of Soloveitchik's work and. Uh, I find it very interesting, and I'm wondering what new directions it's, if any, uh, it's led your scholarship in and what you're working on next.
1: Well, one of the interesting things about Soloveitchik's scholarship, and and this is, I think, parallels what I was saying earlier about Soloveitchik being read and studied mostly by his students, is that there is a kind of monopoly over Soloveitchik texts, and every year or two years, a, a new collection of essays is published um, under Soloveitchik's name. Huh. There's a recent book that just came out called Halakhic Morality, again, about Soloveitchik's ethics. Lawrence Kaplan, who translated Halakhic Man, published earlier this year or, or last year, published a, a set of lecture notes, very detailed lecture notes, that were taken at Soloveitchik's lectures on Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. Right. So for me, there are always new. Poss- there seem <laughs> to be endless possibilities for new readings of Soloveitchik or mm-hmm. more complicated, more complicated readings of Soloveitchik as as his works get to be published. Mm-hmm. What are you working on next? Um, well, I've been I've been flipping through the pages of of halachic morality mm-hmm. and seeing the ways in which Soloveitchik conceives of or expresses his conceptions of ethics, which I began to discuss in, in the last Rabbi, and I'm, I'm hoping to to be able to to extend my argument or revise or qualify my argument mm-hmm. in relationship to these newly published works.
0: Well, I greatly look forward to reading that book, as I enjoyed reading this one, and I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today.
1: Well, thank you so much, David. I appreciate it.
0: Once again, the author is William Kohlbrenner, professor of English at bar University in Israel, and the book is The Last Rabbi, Joseph Soloveitchik and Talmudic Tradition, published by Indiana University Press. Professor Kohlbrenner, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you.